Our reading today is from uh, the book of Luke, chapter 7. After Jesus finished presenting all this, uh, presenting all his words among the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion had a servant who was very important to him, but the servant was ill and about to die. When the centurion heard about, uh, heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to Jesus to ask him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly pleaded with Jesus. He deserves to have you do this for him, they said. He loves our people, and he built our synagogue for us. Jesus went with them. He had almost reached the house when the centurion sent friends to say to Jesus, Lord, don't be bothered. I don't deserve to have you under my roof. In fact, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. I'm also a man appointed under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and the servant does it. When Jesus heard these words, he was impressed with the centurion. He turned to the crowd following him and said, I tell you, even in Israel, I haven't found faith like this. When the centurion's friends returned to his house, they found the servant restored to health. A little later, Jesus went to a city called Nain. His disciples and a great crowd traveled with him. As he approached the city gate, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was with her. When he saw her, the Lord said, sorry, the Lord had compassion for her and said, Don't cry. He stepped forward and touched the stretcher on which the dead man was being carried. Those carrying him stood still. Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Awestruck, everyone praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding region. Long before I decided to enter the ministry, I remember I went to a friend's wedding. Now, I was in my mid-twenties, I guess. My daughter was very young, maybe three or four years old. And this friend had been a friend that I had known for many, many years, but I hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen him in maybe three or four years before this. And I didn't know he had, he was very religious. He was getting he was getting married and he was having a, the the wedding in a church, you know, and everything. And and his uh, his I had never met his wife or anything like that. It was all completely a surprise to us. But he invited us because we were you know I was a long an old friend, and so we came. And uh, we went to the wedding and it was in a little a little church. Um, I didn't pay attention at the time, but if I was going to guess, I'd say probably a Baptist or a Church of Christ kind of church. Um, I don't know, maybe Presbyterian, a small kind of um, uh, free church style congregation. 
And the, I remember, though, that the minister got up and during the wedding, he gave a sermon, which is a standard thing to do uh, during weddings sometimes, uh, especially before. I think it's not quite as common these days. But the sermon that he gave, the sermon topic that he gave, was very odd to me. Now, I would assume that if you gave a sermon during a wedding, that it would be about love, it would be about faithfulness, it would be about any kinds of things between uh, the bride and the groom, or the, the, the two people getting married, whatever that might be. Something something along the lines of God's love, something, you know, I don't know. There's lots of things you could choose from. But what this minister spoke about in his sermon was homosexuality. And he came out he came out about it he came around it round to it in a very odd way. He came around to it by talking about the the one man, one woman in marriage um line, I guess. The <laughs> the the thing that, that that many ministers are kind of caught up on right now, uh, with that. And he kind of worked that that in and worked that that reading in to um the, the reading about how a man is, you know, how, 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 uh, uh, a woman, you know, leaves her family and, and, and joins her husband. Um, he, he put that reading in and, and then he gave a whole sermon on it. I mean, it must've been 20 minutes and I was just kind of awestruck and I was, I couldn't believe it because first of all, I knew that my friend didn't care about that at all. I, I you know, maybe, maybe he did. Maybe I, maybe I misunderstood, but I'd known him for, you know, I don't know, 10 years at this point. And since we were in grade school together and never once had this seemed to have been an issue with him. But of course, I didn't know his wife. Maybe his wife's family was very religious, but it really felt like the minister had just kind of stuck this in because he really wanted to talk about it. And this was a good opportunity for him to talk about it. But the result of it was that it made me very uncomfortable. It made me very, very uncomfortable to be in that church building. Um, and, you know, I was going because this this guy was an old friend of mine, you know, from, from childhood. Uh, and I was really happy for him. And I kind of brushed this off and thought, well, you know, I guess I'm just not going to worry about it too much. I mean, this is just this minister. And, uh, and really nothing ever came of it after that. But I remember it made me really uncomfortable. And I think there have been several times when I've been in church buildings and this this um, need has come over the minister to make a point about how some people are not welcome here. You know, people who who love other people of the same gender are not welcome, this man said, right? He didn't say it directly, but that's the impression he gave, right? And I've also heard it more directly. I remember once, uh, you know, I used to serve a, a, a very progressive uh, church in Austin, Texas, with a with a very strong ministry for the LGBTQ plus community in Austin, uh, especially the the trans community. A lot a lot of um, outreach and and inclusion of of trans folks in that community, and uh, it was a great community. I, I really I love them. They're they're uh, they're close to my heart all all the time. But I remember one time. We were in a we were in a meeting, and I I can't remember if it was um, if it was a like a, a a committee meeting, or if it was 
uh, a service, a Sunday service. And, I, and the fact that I can't remember is kind of funny. Um, this, but because the Sunday services are pretty relaxed at this church anyway. But I think it was a Sunday service. And I, and I remember what happened. It's somebody, and it wasn't the minister. It was, it was somebody in the congregation. But somebody in the congregation made a comment. It, there was, in fact, oh, I do remember now. It was, it was during prayer time. So, like, we have the prayers for the people. They would, they would pass a microphone. And everybody would be who wanted to would be allowed to to ask their prayer, and the whole congregation would would um, would do something like we do with the God of Mercy, hear our prayer, same kind of thing. Um, but we would pass the microphone around, and uh, one member, a very a long time member, came up, and I, I forget what the rest of his prayer was for, but it, part of the prayer he was he was very angry with um, a political thing that was going on um, in at the time. And he made a comment about how happy, how grateful he was that he had found this congregation and how glad he was that there were no uh, Republicans in this congregation. Which, of course, it, it, you know, is almost, I'm almost 90% sure is false, right? I mean, um, <laughs> I'm sure somebody in that congregation, somebody in that room of, of 100 people, uh, you know, considered themselves a Republican. So, uh, but it was this person's own prejudices showing themselves in church. And I, and again, I felt really uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable. I thought, oh, I can't, you know, I can't imagine if I was that person and here I was, I had come, maybe I'm visiting, maybe I'm a longtime member. Maybe I'm a, maybe I've been here since, since before this other person has been here. You know, maybe, maybe I'm just, I'm been coming a couple of times, it, whatever, whatever the situation is. And I hear from, from, this a fellow congregant that they're really glad that I'm not there. <laughs> Maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't know that I'm Republican. You know, a lot of people go, you know, a lot of people go to church. Nobody knows that they are gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender or queer, or, you know. Um, and yet people will say things that make them feel unwelcome can't tell what someone's political affiliation is and yet people will say things to make them feel unwelcome sometimes i've been at churches very progressive churches uh, like unitarian universalist churches and people have said that they're thankful that nobody here believes in god you know and then i'm i feel unwelcome or i've heard i've had the opposite happen i've had people say you know i'm you know bad things about atheists and then i feel uncomfortable because I have many friends who are atheists. I've heard people talk about the poly community and maybe uncomfortable because I have friends who are in that community. I mean, I've, you know, I, I have friends in many communities of all different kinds all over the place. And so I often worry about them in the, in when we make broad generalizations about, about people. My point is, my point is that here was an example on two different sides of things, on two different, um, two different, very different kinds of churches of the same, the same kind of problem, the same kind of us versus them uh, mentality of, uh, are, are, aren't we glad that we are the chosen people and that those other people aren't here? This story from Luke that we have in our reading today, this story comes 
uh, a couple of chapters after our last reading. Now, I missed a, um, a sermon last week because I wasn't feeling well, so I apologize for that. And we missed a little bit of stuff. But two stories that, that we passed over that were actually not in the reading from last week anyway, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, one of them is the uh, the story of the calling of the apostles. Um, and the other one is uh, the story of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, basically. Uh, the, the, the Beatitudes, um, kind of thing. So we've we've kind of passed over that those things. Those are really important teachings. And in fact, the Sermon um, on the Mount is is what comes right before this reading. That's why the reading begins with you know once he had said these things, then he went into Capernaum. So he he you know Jesus is, is coming from giving this teaching and is going into Capernaum, and he's becoming more and more well known because of his teaching and its healing and everything. So um, there are two stories in, there in our reading, but I'm going to focus mostly on the story of the centurion. And so before I do that, I want to go back. I'm going to skip ahead and talk about the story of um, the, uh, the, the dead son of the widow. So Luke, uh, so uh, the story of the centurion is also told in Matthew. But, but the story of the widow, of the widow's son, is only told in Luke. And, and Luke is uh, trying very hard in this section, or actually in, in all of the, in the whole story, but we especially see it here, to tie Jesus back to the prophets Elijah and Elisha, because they're both they are both seen as as important figures in in uh, the Jewish community. They um, they are both seen as kind of uh, the folks who are pointing the way forward towards the Messiah. And uh, Elijah very famously um, heals uh, or brings back to life a, a dead a, um, a dead child. And so that's this that story of the widow. Um, ties back into that. Also, again, we see I mean, there's lots of stuff in the in the Old Testament and in Jesus' teaching about caring for widows. Um, you know, when a, women did, didn't have a whole lot of of self uh, of rights. They didn't have a whole lot of rights in in the the time without some kind of male uh, there. So they 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 kind of you know basically they they belonged to their parents until they got married, and then they belonged to their husband and until the husband died, then they belonged to their eldest child. <laughs> I mean, effectively. Um, and so with the, with the husband being dead and the, and the only male child uh, being dead, the woman is, is in dire straits because she, she doesn't have anywhere where she can, she can go. She's going to, she's going to be really out of luck. And, and this situation moves Jesus. And the, and the, the word they use that the, the translation is something like, um, Jesus had compassion for her or something, but the word in Greek is actually related to stomach. So it's like, it's like, you know, he, he felt it in his gut. He, he was so, it was, it was a, it was a visceral reaction, um, which I think is really important. You know, one of the things I've said in the past, and I'll, I'll say it again, I think what makes Jesus so important one of the, for us is that in Jesus, we see God coming and, and living a human life and understanding what it means to be a human being. And here we have Jesus having this vis- visceral reaction of sorrow um, and, and empathy for this woman who has lost her only son after losing her husband and everything else. So this this story um, kind of serves those purposes, just trying to show us, give us a deeper understanding of, of, of Jesus's um, person and, and feeling to, to kind of link him back to Elijah, and also to, um, to, to, of course, give a give a, a miracle story to help lead credence to the idea that he's the Messiah. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But I want to go back and talk about the centurion. So the 
what's important to, to realize it, with the story of the, the centurion is the centurion is is not a, a good figure in in general in Judea at this time. The Roman Empire has kind of has conquered Judea and put in place kind of puppet governors and and leaders of of the area and is controlling things from behind the scenes they're collecting taxes for Rome uh, you know they're using Roman money uh, lots of stuff like that and so the the centurion a centurion was uh, a, a military leader who was in charge of a century of a hundred or so um, uh, soldiers and so this this was not a you know a a uh, run-of-the-mill soldier. This this was a, a leader of other soldiers, a leader of other soldiers. And, and actually, um, the, the units were broken into smaller pieces than that. So so probably he had other leaders that that reported to him, you know. And then they and then those people had their own their own people that reported to them. Um, the Roman army was extremely well uh, extremely well organized. So the point is that he's in a leadership position in the army, and and and. But as a centurion, he represents he represents the oppression of the of the Jewish people by the Romans. He represents the 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 evil of uh, military conquest of a peoples, right? Of people being being oppressed and being um, being uh, beaten down into submission. And yet, so so generally speaking, centurions were not seen as as good people, as positive people to most of the of the Jewish population, and yet. When this centurion's uh, servant, and the the word they use is can be either servant or slave. Um, it's not really clear in, in Greek, and but then later he uses a word that's that's more like servant than slave. So um, surely this person was a slave, was owned by the by the centurion. But it's very obvious that the centurion uh, cared quite a bit about the this servant, or you know, why else sinned for Jesus, right? So. So um, the centurion is is um, we have we have kind of empathy with the centurion in this situation. But anyway, the the centurion um, doesn't come himself. He sends a, a group of of, uh, of Jews of, of local people to come vouch for him. And in fact, uh, they have an amazing positive thing to say. They're like the centurion. They're, they're telling Jesus like like you know this centurion has asked for you to come do this and and really you should because he's been so good to the community he built our synagogue he's you know he's he's always been a friend of our people and so they're they're they really want Jesus to help and part of that is is because he's asked them and part of it is because he's been doing good things for them in the past right and part of it is probably their own compassion for somebody and so Jesus decides to to come help him and really it doesn't seem like like the argument that they give is the reason Jesus comes. He, they they give the argument, but he but Jesus comes, and I don't think the two things are necessarily related. But then, before Jesus can even reach the centurion's house, the centurion sends friends. So friends here we we can kind of imply are are Gentiles, are non-Jews, Roman citizens who are friends of the centurion, maybe his own his own um, people who who work for him. And we don't know, right? So he sends these people, and they say, you know. The centurion has come to has, has said, "Don't even come to my house. I, you know, I'm not even worthy to, for you to be here." And and this is important because um, one of the things that the centurion obviously knows about being so close to the Jewish community is about ritual cleanliness, and he knows that his home is ritually unclean, and that if 
if Jesus enters the home, Jesus will be ritually unclean. And so he doesn't want Jesus to do this. So he, he tells Jesus, you don't even need to come. Um, this is nice because the centurion's really thinking about thinking about the Jewish community, not Jesus. At the same time, uh, we've seen time and time again, and in fact, we'll see in the next story, in the story about the, the, the widow's son, where Jesus doesn't care about ritual cleanness at all. But he, he touches the dead body, which um, would make him ritually unclean, and everyone around him is kind of shocked when he does it. And that shows that Jesus didn't really care about ritual cleanliness um, at all. At all. And so... He doesn't care about that, but but the centurion says, "I'm not, you know, I'm not even worthy." And then the centurion backs it up with with this amazing statement. He says, "You know, his I, the centurion, am a man with authority, and I know that if I tell the people I have authority over, go and do it, they're going to do it." And and in the same way, you, Jesus, have authority, and so if you tell the the sickness to go away, then it'll go away. You don't even have to be here. You you know, you you can you can give it a command from where you are. Which Jesus thinks is a, is a thinks is great. He's he's like hardly have I ever seen such faith even in Israel. And so he does. That's what he does. And when the friends go back to the house, they find that the servant has has recovered. In um, and Jesus goes on to his next thing, which is this the story of the of the widow and the widow's son. So there's a couple of really interesting things in here. One I think is that I think the the, the fact that Jesus the, this whole thing about you have authority, and if you if you give an order, it'll it'll happen. You know, Jesus doesn't need to be physically present with us um, in order to affect us, in order to change our lives. And and there's a lot of things that that have grown up, that have, that have come about in Christianity about physical contact and physical touch. Um, and and I, I won't get into it in details here, but there's a lot of sacramental things that have to do with with physically being together and physically touching one another and all this kind of stuff. But here we see an example where Jesus doesn't need to be physically present in order to heal the servant. And you know, there was a lot of, for example, there was a lot of, of argument, um, especially in, in like the, the Middle Ages and Renaissance, about the nature of communion and whether Jesus was physically present in the bread and the wine and communion. And lots of, lots of arguments and different, different um, ideas and very, you know, really minute, you know, minor differences in things and, well, as, you know, uh, you know, the the bread is is the body of Jesus, but it's not, and all these kinds of of things they were working through. But this story shows us. I mean, Jesus doesn't need to be physically present for something to be effective, for something to for 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 something to be um, for him to have be able to 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 make an effect on something. And so this this kind of follows. Uh, this is kind of an aside, but it kind of this kind of follows my own idea of the, of the Eucharist, which is. This idea that Jesus is is mysteriously present. In other words, like Jesus is Jesus is, is among us because we remember him. It doesn't it doesn't you know he says you know, do this in remembrance of me. It doesn't matter so much whether the the bread and the wine are actually Jesus's body and blood, and I don't think they are. But it doesn't really matter. The the point is that Jesus is there with us in the meal, um, welcoming everyone to the table. So that's one thing. Um. But the more important point I want to make here is about the centurion. So the, the centurion is an outsider. And um, healing the centurion slave kind of foreshadows an event that happens later in, in Luke's uh, uh, narrative. So Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which picks up at the end of the Gospel and talks about the, the early life of the church and the early founders of the church. 
And so in the book of Acts, there's a, there's a scene where Peter is asked to go to a centurion's home to, to talk about, about Jesus and about Christianity. And he's unsure of whether he should go because this is not a Jewish household. But he does go, and he ends up converting the centurion, and the, and the centurion is baptized, and so is the centurion's entire household. And this is kind of the turning point when Peter says, you know, maybe it's okay for there to be Gentiles in, <laughs> in, in the Jesus movement. Maybe we don't need to have just uh, devout Jews in the Jesus movement. Um, a, an idea that Paul will then pick up and run with and, and you know, will lead to, to the church we know today. So what we see in this story is that um, Luke is pointing out the fact that this, this is something that Jesus himself said that this is not you know this is not an invention of the later church i mean jesus welcomed everybody and in fact right before this um or not right before but a little bit before this we see jesus taking in um uh levi who is a who is a tax collector so so he he calls levi to be to be part of be one of his apostles to be part of his 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 group um of close followers and levi is a tax collector and the tax collectors were also kind of outcasts of society because they were helping the Roman oppressors. They were collecting money from the people and sending that money back to the Roman oppressors. And so they were, and sometimes they were also, um, they were also corrupt and they would take additional money for themselves and pocket it. Um, But we don't see this with Levi, but, but that's, that's one of the reasons why tax collectors were generally kind of shunned. They were seen as not, not good members of society. But over and over again, we see that Jesus doesn't care about that. He doesn't care that, that Levi is a tax collector. He doesn't care that people are, are prostitutes or, or you know, centurions or, uh, you know, whatever. He doesn't care about the, who they are. He, he wants everybody to come. And again, we see this with the centurion. But very specifically now we're talking about Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Because, uh, because up until this point, the people he's been calling to are, are Jewish. Um, or very closely related, um, for example, I, f- I forget if the if the story um, of the the woman at the well comes before this or after this in the narrative, um, but uh, or, or the you know the story of um, the Samaritan. So that so you know the Samaritan the Samaritans were um, were not Jewish, but they were also very closely related. They you know they they had been. Um, they're kind of like cousins, I guess, of the Jewish people in a lot of ways. Whereas the Romans were wholly, wholly other, right? Like they were, they were oppressors, complete outsiders. So, again, the point really is that Jesus doesn't care about uh, your background. Jesus doesn't care about what you do for a living. Jesus doesn't care about whether you're ritually clean or unclean, whether you're following all of the, the ritual purity laws and things in the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't care about any of that. There's a, a, a scene we, we see before this that was, was actually the reading last week that we skipped over where Jesus and his, and his apostles are wandering through a field on the Sabbath, taking grain from the field and eating it. And the, the, the elders, the religious leaders are upset because they're doing something on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, this, you know, why, this is, why are you worried about this? This is not a thing to worry about. Um, he makes it, you know, a much more elegant argument than that, of course. But his point is that this is not, you know, the, the this kind of thing is not something he's really worried about. He wants to know, are you helping the poor? Are you helping the oppressed? Are you taking care of the widow? Who we see again, we see right after this. Are you, are you loving your neighbor? Those are the things he cares about. He doesn't care about 
where you're from or what you do or anything like that. And so I think what, what's happened is that um, it's very easy for us to lose sight of this message. Accepting people who are different from us is really difficult. And there are a lot of people who are proud sometimes uh, of the fact that they are so inclusive. They're proud of the fact that they, that they are so welcoming of other people. And yet, in their heart, maybe they're not. It's hard to, to be welcoming of the person that you have made your villain, uh, of the person that you have, have created a demon out of, right? It's hard to then welcome that same person in, you know. Uh, I see in our, in, our, in our Facebook group and in other Facebook groups, I see this happen sometimes. You know, we have people from all over. We have people from all over the world. We have people from, from all over, from all different kinds of backgrounds who are part of our community. You know, we have folks who come from evangelical Christianity, folks who come from kind of more mainline American Christianity, folks who come from, from Christianity as it's worshipped in other places in the world, folks who come from atheist backgrounds, from Buddhist backgrounds, from, from other places. And, and sometimes if we've been hurt by the religious tradition of our upbringing, whatever that is, um, then it can be difficult for us to welcome people from that tradition because we've been so hurt by it. And to open our hearts to those people and, and realize that they too are a child of God and hold them accountable, hold them accountable for, for, for their beliefs, you know, um, um, gently, lovingly, argue with them that maybe they should consider this other thing, but don't, don't make them the other. Don't make them somebody else. They're, they're us too. And when we create this, this division between us and them, we turn away from God because God is in those people just as God is in within all people. We're all God's children and God invites us all to the table if we're willing to come in love with our hearts open to what we're going to find there. There's a story of, uh, of Jesus, that Jesus tells a parable of uh, the banquet and inviting people to the banquet and nobody comes. And so then they go out in the streets and invite whoever they can find. The same kind of story. Everyone's invited to the banquet. But you have to come with an open mind and an open, open hearts and with love and be willing to be uncomfortable sometimes in those conversations and be willing to, to be wrong and be willing to um, be corrected and to grow and to, um, to really deepen your, your faith. So that's what I invite you to do this week is think about the, the people and the groups that you have shunned, the people and the, and the groups that you have made into your enemies and think about how you can work to include them, to welcome them, uh, honestly, not, not just with lip service, but to honestly welcome them into your life, um, in love. Amen.